What's up, everyone? Hello, and welcome back to another new episode of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. And it seems to have become a weekly sediment that I'm making, but boy, what the past seven days in America. For those of you listening outside of the country, I'm sure you have heard the news that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away over the weekend, and there's now a huge fight brewing between Democrats and Republicans on whether or not a new justice should be appointed before the upcoming November election here in America. This calls back to 2016 when Justice Antonin Scalia passed away and the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, refused to take a vote on President Barack Obama's appointee of Merrick Garland. So it's just one more thing in what has been an absolutely awful year not only for America, but the world, that is really leading the United States down a road that I don't think it's been for about 140 years. It's something that is starting to be more and more concerning. And it's time like this that we miss voices like James Baldwin. And while... James Baldwin is no longer with us. We can still read his work and take inspiration from it. And after the interview that I played for you today, I want to talk to you about a conversation I had earlier this weekend with a person that gave me inspiration and hope for not only this country, but the world. But I will save that story, as I said, until after today's interview which I want to get to right away. Today I am being joined by Dr. Bill V. Mullen, Professor of American Studies at Purdue University, and we talk about Baldwin in the 1960s, his role in the Civil Rights Movement, his growing pain and disdain throughout the decade, and some of the work that he created, which was absolutely and still is brilliant. So after this short break, we'll get to Dr. Bill V. Mullen from Purdue University, and I'll talk to you all on the other side. All right, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Mullen. First question for you is, what is your favorite work by James Baldwin? Wow. Um, I guess I'll, I'll split this question into two parts. I guess if it's a nonfiction work, uh, I'd probably take No Name in the Street, which I think is, uh, you know, uh, an underread book, but is such a, you know, he writes it in the, at the end of the 1960s as kind of a reflection on everything that's happened to him and to, to the world since the 1950s. And I find it the most kind of uh, introspective, self-reflective Baldwin book. It's kind of, it sort of rethinks everything he's done from the time he went south in the civil rights movement to 
reporting on the Nation of Islam and up to the death of Martin Luther King. And it's both a sad in some ways heartbreaking reflection on, you know, what I call in my book, the revolution that didn't happen in the 1960s. But also, I think one of the shows Baldwin trying to keep hope alive for himself, um, especially in the aftermath of King's shooting, which, you know, he said didn't break the movement, but broke a certain hope in people. And he was himself, I think, struggling uh, when he sat down to write that book, uh, having lived through the, the rise of of black power and had his own hopes raised so profoundly. So I find it a, a, a both a you know beautifully uh, in, interior book, but also historically one of one of the most uh, comprehensive and insightful reviews he ever did on U.S. history. Ah, uh, boy, if, if I'm thinking about if I'm thinking about his creative work. I guess I'll just go, I'll throw out blues from Mr. Charlie, uh, you know, which is a play he wrote about 1964 uh, after his friend Med Grebers was, was murdered by a Klansman in Mississippi. And uh, it's about that event and the effect it had on Baldwin. You know, the play is about a young black man who's falsely accused of trying to sexually assault a white woman and is himself murdered by a, by a white supremacist. And it feels so alive. You know, it was the, for, for my mind, it was one of the best plays of the 1960s to capture uh, the, the violence that was being unleashed by white supremacists, um, sort of it written at a turning point between, uh, you know, the nonviolent civil rights movement and a slightly more militant wing. And, which becomes the Black Power Movement. And the end of the play kind of gestures towards that through the life of this woman, Juanita, who is the, the lover of the man who's, who was murdered. And she sort of steps forward as the new, the new generation at the end. And I just think it's a beautiful piece of work. It's a great uh, piece of dramaturgy. It shows, I think it's Baldwin's best theatrical piece. Um, so I guess today the, those would be my answers. If you ask me tomorrow, I might, I might ask, answer differently. Right. And that's something when I've asked other people, it's like, okay, yeah, today I'm going to answer this. And like you just said, tomorrow it'll be something else. I am glad you brought up blues for Mr. Charlie. So for Mr. Charlie, though, because I want to touch on that in a little bit. Um, how did you first come to James Baldwin as a writer? Well, I came to him as a teacher, you know, which is kind of significant since, uh, you know, I think of him as a great teacher also. And he was a college professor for a time. I was teaching freshman writing in New York City back in the 1980s when I was working on my PhD uh, at Hunter College. And uh, I, you know, I, I taught one of Baldwin's essays uh, about Harlem called A Letter from Uptown. And it's kind of, a you know, one of his typically soulful reflections on what it meant to to grow up poor and black in Harlem. And to see uh, both the, you know, the, the the kinds of levels of oppression that black folks are dealing with there and talking about the police and, and, and then also kind of reflecting on his own eventual escape from, from that place. And I, I taught the essay to my freshman writers because I thought Baldwin does something so beautiful as a writer that you want all writers to do, which is to be able to work from the self outward right? He starts with a highly personal events in his life, and then suddenly he's tying them uh, to 
events happening around the world or in the world to so many of us. And that little that little movement from the self to, to the world, I was trying to teach my students that trick, you know, and uh, as, a, as a teacher. And I felt he was a brilliant model as a way uh, as a, uh, for young writers. And I think also I felt like his life kind of matched, you know, the lives of a lot of my students who were very much, a, it was very much a multiracial, first generation, working class college student body. And uh, these were the kinds of people I thought James Baldwin would have been if he had gone to college. Of course, he, he never made it. But the, he reminded me of them and vice versa. So that was my first entry point to Baldwin. Now, your biography about him was, I believe, the first one that had been written in over a decade. Uh, so what led you to want to write a, a biography about him? Because she's had several biographies written about him, but I think yours, the point of view that you attack it from, is much different than the others. Yeah, I mean, my motivation was very, uh, very much political. Uh, you know, I... I, I'm a political activist in my spare time. I was very inspired by the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, after the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Uh, I took part in demonstrations here on my own campus. And it as soon as the movement broke out, I mean, two things happened. One, um, I began to remember how Baldwin had written so profoundly about the role of the police in the, in the U.S., and especially in black communities. Um, and he, you know, he famously wrote in this essay in the late 1960s about the police as what he calls occupying forces in black communities, uh, as, as if they were really kind of a military presence. And that metaphor struck me so strongly, you know, as you saw pe people in the streets rising up against weaponized police followed shortly thereafter by the presence in places like Ferguson of the National Guard. And I thought this is a James Baldwin moment. You know, this is a moment he predicted and wrote about incessantly. I mean, he was obsessed actually with policing. He, you know, he, um, if that beautiful novel he wrote, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is about a young black man, you know, um, threatened with, actually falsely accused of a crime and incarcerated in New York in the early 70s. That was very much inspired by his own defense of a man named Tony Maynard, who was a, a young black man falsely accused of a crime who spent five years in prison. So James Waldman, I thought, had a lot to tell us about that moment, that, that kind of political moment of Black Lives Matter rising. And I was also inspired by the fact that, you know, very quickly, young folks began to, like, find Baldwin again, like his name started popping up and quotes from James Baldwin started popping up everywhere. It was almost like everyone was had to understand that this was a, a patron saint in some ways of what this movement was about. So that was my, my first, uh, I don't know, impulse was to say, let's take a look at James Baldwin again in light of this new social movement and see what he has to say about its history and about how we got to the moment that we're in. Uh, I think that was the for me the main motivation and and why I in particular took the um the route I did which was to try to focus on his own political development uh, as much as his literary development. Great. Uh in your book you call Baldwin both a participant and architect of the black power movement. How and why do you think he went from being 
in that position in the early 60s to what Eldridge Cleaver would call a puppet for the white man by the late 60s? Uh, wow. Well, let me, let me disaggregate that question a little bit. Um, I, I do argue that Baldwin moved considerably to the left across the 1960s. Um, you know, he begins going south in 1957 as a witness and a journalist to write about, you know, the Little Rock Nine and the integration of, of, of high schools in, in Arkansas. Uh, he very quickly, by events in 59, like the Cuban Revolution, um, the development of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a much more militant response to um, Southern segregation, really, uh, I think, drew his attention. Uh, he was, while he was always an advocate for King's, you know, civil rights movement and attended the March on Washington, uh, he had a special interest in trying to figure out why Malcolm X was appealing to, to young black folks in, in 62 and 63 which was really the impetus for the, the fire next time. It's really his attempt to understand why is the nation of Islam suddenly speaking to so many poor black uh, Americans. And all of that, I think, began to, to uh, raise questions for him about solutions. And he was pretty convinced, especially after things like, you know, the Birmingham church bombing in 1963, where he sees these four black girls killed by Klansmen, and, you know, the Kennedy administration doesn't really want to do anything about it. And Baldwin starts to say, well, white liberals are not going to save us, right? We're going to have to save ourselves. And that was really the, that was really the, the slogan of the Black Power movement, right? I mean, it was black liberation was only going to come through black hands. And I think Baldwin very much, uh, when the Black Panther Party emerged in 1966, he said, this was inevitable. He said, this has been really waiting to happen since the day we arrived as slaves on this shore. This notion of a, of a black self-defense movement that would take, as he put it, take freedom, you know, rather than asking for it. So that's the, the, the trajectory of Baldwin, in, you know, from, in my mind, from 57 to, to 67, 68. And, uh, and, and then, you know, to pick up your quote from Cleaver, I mean, that's, that's really one of the most painful moments in Baldwin's life. I mean, Eldridge Cleaver was a minister with the Black Panther Party, but he attacked Baldwin for his sexuality. I mean, that quote where he becomes a puppet for the white man was really uh, part of a larger attack on Baldwin as a, as a gay black man, who he uh, said, just by virtue of, of his homosexuality, was kind of a traitor to, the, to his race, a traitor to the black power movement. Uh, that's Cleaver at his worst. And it hurt, those comments hurt Baldwin profoundly because he understood them as homophobia. He wanted to be uh, allied with the Black Power movement, um, but he paid a price for it you know, because of his sexuality. Um, the other part of that quote about you know, Baldwin becoming a puppet for the white man, I mean, Baldwin did reflect, and this was separate from the kind of homophobic nature of that remark. He does, he does reflect in, in No Name in the Street, that book I mentioned a minute ago, when he looks back at his own uh, assess, early assessment of Malcolm X, where he was very critical of the Nation of Islam. He basically said, I think the NOI is arguing for black supremacy. We don't need another supremacist movement. We've already had white supremacy. 
But by the end of the 1960s, he's looking back, recognizing how correct fundamentally Malcolm X was in his arguments about black self-determination being a necessary part of the movement. And he says in, in, in No Name in the Street, you know, I, in effect, was the, the black man that white America could get next to in that, in that early moment of the 1960s, because I was basically criticizing Malcolm X, who was seen as an enemy of the, of the, of the white race, you know, in, in very profound ways. So uh, that's my kind of assessment of that. And, and again, uh, I, I, No Name in the Street is such a powerful book because it really allows you to see Baldwin reflecting on this whole journey that he took, which is sort of the basis of your question. How did he himself move from being, you know, sort of sympathetic to a soft integrationism to a, a much stronger cr criticism of, of integration. And, and I should also add one more thing, you know, the Vietnam war sharpened Baldwin's uh, criticism of the U S state and American imperialism. And I try to spend a lot of time in the book arguing that that itself is a gigantic part of his political evolution, his, his emerging role as a fierce critic of American capitalism, imperialism is also part of his, his uh, journey across the 1960s. And, you know, you, you brought up earlier talking about blues from Mr. Charlie. So I always found, you know, those few years in the early 60s, a very interesting time for Baldwin because blues from Mr. Charlie is very much in the spirit of the black power movement before there was a black power movement really yeah. mainstream. So, you know, I, you know, see him as ahead of his time there. And it just, I, I was always curious and wondering, you know, how he got from being on the front edge of the movement, going to somebody that is viewed as past their time so quickly. So, you know, in asking you that question, it's because that Cleaver quote and uh, the writing about him has always, it just has rubbed me the wrong way. And I just view it as such a misrepresentation of Baldwin. Do, do you that as well? Um, well, I mean, just to go back to the blues from Mr. Charlie and you, your point about black power, uh, you know, he argued over and over again that the generation that became SNCC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the student movement and core the congress of racial equality which was a you know a group that he actually you know went around the country raising funds for speaking on college campuses he was really keen all the time on the idea that that young generation that was born in the late 40s and the 50s was what he called the brave generation you know said braver than mine we we didn't have the courage to do lunch counter sit-ins and and these kids do so he knew there was something special about it and that was the generation that becomes black power and and blues from mr charlie in is in the play is really that pivot point where you see you know in the south in the early 60s a debate about tactics and strategies direct protest direct action armed self-defense right um you know i mean um uh 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 it's it's important to remember that you know the the black panther party itself you know, starts in Lowndes County, Alabama, you know, a small group called Black Panther 
for self-defense. There was a self-defense movement among black people in the South in the early 60s. There was Robert Williams, who wrote this book called Negroes with Guns, who was an NAACP organizer. So that that just you know, kind of nurturing idea of black self-defense, uh, Baldwin was really, I think, keen to it and alert to it and wanted to kind of pay attention and respect to it in that play. Um, I think that I think that's the, a primary movement for him, uh, for sure. Uh, I think people forget how, you know, what a price he paid for these politics. I write in my book about, you know, the FBI surveillance of Baldwin, which begins around 1960. Um, they're worried that he's making, you know, he's signing open statements in support of the Cuban Revolution. Um, that they're worried that he's writing so many negative things about the police. Uh, his FBI file is almost 1,800 pages long. Uh, he was worried that the, the FBI was going to try, was tapping his phone. He was worried that the F, FBI was going to do him, do him violence. He threatened to write a book exposing their tactics. Um, he knew that the FBI was trailing Martin Luther King. So he was a much more dangerous man than I think we tend to remember him as. I think there's a, a tendency sometimes, and you were, you were refer, referring this to, you know, to kind of sanitize Baldwin's legacy and remember him uh, as somebody who argued that, you know, loving your enemy was, was the only way forward. Well, Baldwin did argue that you needed a kind of, black folks needed to accept the idea that they might have to love white people in the abstract, even while they were trying to take power from them, right? But that that's a very complicated kind of love. Uh, Baldwin was definitely uh, never soft peddling hard questions like how you would actually take power. And I think that, uh, that that Baldwin is the one I was trying to get at in my book, the one who, uh, really stood up to the U.S. state, to the, to the police, to censors, um, to homophobia, uh, and, you know, relentlessly uh, refused to back down. That's uh, that, The title of my book is James Baldwin, Living in Fire, and it comes from a quote from him saying, you know, those who, uh, those who don't live in the fire like me have no idea how hot it is in here. Uh, and it was hot. It was, his life was, was was a hot life. Is there anything about Baldwin that surprised you or shocked you while you were doing research for the book? Uh, you know, his he had profound self-doubts. I mean, for one of the most successful uh, successful writers of his generation, he was racked with anxiety about simple things like getting his work finished. He oftentimes was working on three or four projects at the same time. He was in demand, especially by the, the media in the 1960s. He was on television constantly. You know, he was on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, he was peripatetic. He had enormous pressures on him to produce, to write, to, to pay his bills. Uh, he struggled with money constantly. Um, he was always looking for the next magazine assignment because he needed, he needed the money to survive. And part of that, was because he was so generous with his money. Um, he gave money constantly to his family. He bought a wonderful apartment in New York for his mother. You know, when 
when Malcolm X died, he sent Betty Shabazz $100, which at the time was a pretty good chunk of money. And he, uh, his, his, his generosity uh, was, was part of, a, uh, uh, part of, the, of, of putting himself in danger. Uh, he took so many risks on behalf of other people that he sometimes didn't have, I think, time to care for himself. You know, his health wasn't, was often not good. Um, he had, he suffered from depression, uh, attempted to kill himself at least one time. Um, we know that his romantic life was very uneven. Um, you know, most of the, most of the, the, the primary romantic relationships of his life um, did not go the way Baldwin would have hoped they would have gone. So that, I won't say it surprised me. I knew some of that from the other biographies. But I, as I was reading his correspondence, you know, I remember reading a letter from him to a friend. He was just turning 40, and he's got this tremendous sense of his own mortality. And I thought, wow, you know, 40, to feel he was really on top of the world as a writer. But, uh, but I, I guess one more thing I'd say about this, this complex of his own mortality was also marked by his awareness as a black gay man in this world and somebody who was speaking out constantly against power and watching friends like Medgar Evers, you know, be taken down by the state and by the police. Baldwin knew the world was a very dangerous place. So I was really struck, especially when you get into his, his private writings, how much that anxiety and fear um, lived inside of him uh, constantly when, when, when he was writing and when he wasn't. Last question for you, and you briefly touched on this a few minutes ago. Um, you know, Baldwin has had a rebirth over the past decade. What do you think his legacy is, and has it changed at all with this rebirth that he's had? Well, I, I argue that I argue in my little. I write an epilogue to the book, and I say that there are at least two legacies to Baldwin, almost like a point one point zero and two point zero version. Uh, the first legacy, and both of these, I think, are intact, but the second one is still developing. His first legacy is he was he was for so many black writers of his generation the writer who taught them that they could do it. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about Toni Morrison. I'm talking about Amiri Baraka. I'm talking about writers coming of age in the 50s and the 60s who wanted to be public black intellectuals and public black voices. James Baldwin was that figure, right? He was a dominating figure. I think he had everything to do with the, the emergence of, of black writing, especially after the 1950s in this country. And I mean the black arts movement, I mean people like Toni Morrison, I mean, you know, I mean even some of the later feminists who, uh, uh, black feminists like Audre Lorde and June Jordan, who he actually, you know, was in dialogue with, Nikki Giovanni, they, even when they disagreed with him and wanted to talk with him about gender politics and they sat down with him and said, you know, you, we're not sure you completely understand sometimes what our black feminism means, but they were they were coming to him because he was such a gigantic figure for all of them as the person who had opened up race, sexuality, gender discussions in his work. So that legacy, you know, is going to remain forever and and will only deepen. I mean, it's incredible. 
in the last 10 years, how many Ta-Nehisi Coates and Jessica Ward have all gone back to Baldwin, uh, Teju Cole, they've all gone back to Baldwin again, uh, partly because of this new Black Lives Matter movement to say, wow, he, he's, his, legacy, he's got, his legacy just keeps on growing. And the second one that I argue is maybe, you know, your original to this moment is I do think we're going to have to rethink James Baldwin in the wake of this now what is really now eight years of sustained social protest about police violence, racism, police racism, and violence against black communities. Because James Baldwin was, to my mind, the first writer who really put these issues on the public map. And I mean, not just talking to black communities who knew these stories, but writing about them in places like The Nation and The New Yorker and Playboy magazine and really shouting from the rooftop, this is what it's like to live as, as a black person in America. And I feel like we're going to have to kind of rethink James Baldwin all over again, depending on how this movement plays out, you know. Uh, I, I think if Baldwin was alive today, he'd be an abolitionist. He'd be, he'd be talking about abolishing the police. He said the police only play two roles in, 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 uh, in, in this country. He says to, it is to keep black people down and to protect private property. I mean, those are basically two of the mantras of this abolitionist movement, right? So, you know, um, uh, Baldwin was a predictor of the present. Uh, when, when we read Baldwin now, we're reading both his past and our present. So I think we have a lot of happy legacy work to do because I think his legacy, you know, like all great figures, is 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 unfinished. I agree with that 100%. Uh, the last thing I like to do for my guests is give you the opportunity to plug either a website or something you might be working on at the moment? Um, well, I would love folks to read my, my, you know, my book, Living in Fire. Um, I, 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 rather than plug, I guess, what I'm working on at the moment, I'm, I'm working on something that won't be available for a long time. <laughs> but um, I, I, I do think some folks should read around some of the wonderful work that's being done on Baldwin now. You, you know, Ed Pavlik's work on Baldwin and music is superb. Uh, Imani Perry uh, has written a wonderful biography of Lorraine Hansberry recently. And I talk a little bit about uh, her relationship to James Baldwin, which was a very deep one. Um, you know, I'm talking about the woman who wrote Raisin in the Sun. Uh, Imani's book opens up spaces and, uh, about Baldwin in their relationship to Lorraine Hansberry, which is which is wonderful. Um, I think you know Ta-Nehisi Coates' book uh, Between the World and Me and his reflections on Baldwin's legacies. I think that you know people ought to be rereading Baldwin. Uh, they ought to be rereading all of James Baldwin as fast as they can. But I think that some of these other writers have also contributed, you know, some some really beautiful, important. Uh, new thoughts to to who James Baldwin is. Dr. Bill Mullen, author of James Baldwin, Living in Fire. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. My thanks again to Dr. Bill V. Mullen 
professor of American Studies at Purdue University, for joining me today. I will have links to his book and his website in the show notes for today. And as I said earlier, I want to talk to you a little bit about an interview I had earlier this weekend that will appear on the podcast in the coming weeks. It was with author, activist, cultural archivist, Charles Reese. And he has been involved with Baldwin most of his life, starting with a chance encounter that the two had at Morehouse College in 1981. But I was just so taken by Charles's spirit and his passion and his pride and his love, not only for Baldwin, but the work that he does and just for humanity in general. And it helped me and gave me kind of kicking the butt that I needed because I'm not going to lie to y'all. This pandemic has gotten to me and I thought doing this podcast as a creative outlet would help. And trust me, it absolutely has. And I love sitting down here in my little makeshift podcast studio every week, talking about Baldwin, having on really interesting guests and talking about music that I love. But between this pandemic and this social unrest in the United States and having to homeschool a first grader that is on the autism spectrum takes a lot out of you and it wears you down. And this talk with Charles Reese was exactly what I needed to rejuvenate my soul. So if you listen to this, Charles, I know you've listened to other episodes. I just want to personally thank you for your time and your kindness and your generosity that you gave to me over the weekend. And I'm really excited for the rest of you to hear what he had to say. And again, that'll be in the upcoming weeks. It was a long interview. It was just about three hours. So I'm going to have to do some editing and cut that down because there's no way I'm putting out a three-hour podcast. I like to keep it between this 30 and 45-minute slot. I think that's a good time, a good measure to get out all the information that I need to get out and then y'all have time enough to spend the rest of your day however you want but again thank you Charles Reese can't wait to share our conversation with the rest of the world wrapping up for the week I want to remind you that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, also now on Amazon Music. And please leave a five-star rating. Getting to the songs of the week. The first song is a brand new song that just came out. It is called Turntables, and it is by Janelle Monae. 
and it's on the upcoming Amazon documentary, All In, The Fight for Democracy. And I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I absolutely love Janelle Monet. Her album from 2018, Dirty Computer, for me, it was an absolute masterpiece. I don't know why she isn't more popular than what she is, because I think she is an absolute genius of an artist, and she is completely underrated in her work. I hope more people listen to her, because she deserves all the wonderful things in the world. The second song is from John Coltrane, and it is Alabama, from the album Live at Birdland, released in 1963. The song was originally recorded on November 18, 1963, and for you history buffs, you'll know that is that was four days before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But Coltrane recorded this song after being inspired by Martin Luther King Jr.'s eulogy delivered after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing on September 15, 1963. And obviously, that anniversary happened this past week. And instead of a quote today from Baldwin, what I'm actually going to do is in the show notes, I'm going to link a speech that Baldwin gave on September 25th, 1963 at the New York Community Church. And he gave this speech in the wake of the bombing, and he talks about the use of terrorism to achieve political aims. Once again, we can take a speech from James Baldwin that is now almost 60 years old and apply it directly to what is happening in our country right now, which is why he was, is, and always will be prevalent and really at the center of racial unrest in this country. I've said it before, I'll say it now, and I'll say it many, many times in the future. James Baldwin was and is essential reading for every person in this country. He gave us the answers to solve all of our issues with racial unrest in this country. We just have to take the time to read him, listen to what he was saying, and put his words to good use. Again, I'll put a link to this speech in the show notes. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I'll be back again next week. Until then, take care of yourself and each other. Peace.